Welcome everybody to episode 118 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben, and David. And we have an extra special podcast this week, David, I believe. Yeah, that's right. I interviewed Jess Jerkovic, whose music we heard at the introduction of the podcast today. And he is the creative mind behind the Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who project, where he has transcribed and arranged all 62 of Dudley Simpson's scores into about 30 pieces, picking and choosing interesting parts. And we hear from the man himself later in the episode and uh, going into his project, the Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who project. So that's coming up. But first, it's been pretty eventful since... Since we last talked, we had planned on talking about Love and War, Paul Cornell's uh, uh, Virgin New Adventure, but uh, news has interrupted our podcasting schedule. There's been some sad news in the Doctor Who family. A couple of, couple of very sad yeah. deaths. Um, Paul Darrow and Stephen Thorne, we've yeah, lost. Paul Darrow, uh, twice in Doctor Who. Um, what a hero. Doctor Who and the Silurians. I think uh, Captain Hawkins, was it? Or? Captain Hawkins, yeah. yeah. I, I always I always um, figured that they were kind of thinking that he might become a regular, but I guess he mm-hmm. never did. Uh, mm-hmm. like old Captain Hawkins there um, was replaced by Captain Yates. Yeah. And we never found out what happened to Captain <laughs> Hawkins. <laughs> Killed blowing up Wensley Moore. I don't know. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Like a, an Allosaurus fell on him or something. Or maybe he was uh, killed early on in the Inferno by the Primords and it was a scene that was cut. Oh, could be, could be. He would have made an excellent, um, given his, of course, what Paul Darrow is best known for is, is Avon on Avon, um, yes. on uh, on Blake 7. So he would have made mm-hmm. an, been an excellent alternative universe evil unit person given his mm-hmm. uh, excellence in portraying mm-hmm. evil evil or not evil people because Avon wasn't evil he was just morally ambiguous i think well i think he was out for himself and yes he, i mean he was the star of blake seven i think there's he no was the breakout star that. absolutely yeah and mm-hmm. of course the kind of weird love-hate relationship between him and serverlan um mm-hmm. of course yeah. jack Jacqueline Pierce, Jacqueline we, Pierce. Lost last we, we lost we lost uh, uh, um, this time last year yeah exactly mm-hmm. um and then he was uh, what was he in time last decker Tecker. Tecker, that's it. Tecker. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not a big fan of Time Lash, <laughs> so I, I I'm yeah. not really able to fully recall his. The, I'm sure he was excellent in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, he was getting his own back for uh, when Colin Baker was on uh, Blake Seven, where he played a pretty campy portrayal. So I think uh, Darrow decided to uh, camp it up. Camp it up quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. But by all accounts, he was a stand-up fellow. Um, just just reading people's um, you know reminiscences and stuff on Twitter, etc. He was yeah. just kind of much loved at conventions. Um, I've I never met him. Uh, did you never met him, David? No, no. But definitely, definitely missed. And yes, very much missed. He and uh, Jacqueline Pierce made Blake Seven. Yeah, Blake yeah. Seven. And of course, in Britain, he was known as the voice of Jack FM as well. Um, oh. He did all the links for um, that particular radio station in a kind of laconic, detached Avon delivery, <laughs> which was kind of hilarious, Perfect. actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. fits fits the uh, the aging demographic of that radio station perfectly um and then stephen thorne talking about people with great voices oh yeah he's definitely a voice made for radio and that's why he was always hired in the four roles well three of the four roles that he was in doctor who azal omega and then eldrad for for the voice because he had to project behind a mask or heavy makeup yeah yeah something like that yeah 
Yeah, and um, of course, with Omega, he was literally playing someone who didn't, who had no corporal form. Um, mm-hmm. So even more projecting was required um, in some ways. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 again, I never saw the demons on on its first uh, outing. But um, mm-hmm. uh, Azal, of course, is a well. It's a it's a not only is the demons a fan favorite, it's one of my favorites as well. And mm-hmm. um, just just amazing voice acting, basically, really great mm-hmm. voice acting for all three of those roles. Yeah, I mean, they're iconic villains in yes, Doctor absolutely. Who. They, they're they're significant significant figures, especially Omega and Azal. They're yeah. They are uh, pillars of the Pertwee era. Right, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. And for me, Stephen Thorne will always be Treebeard um, from the BBC uh, was uh, radio oh, okay. adaptation right. of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah, so that's, when I think of him, that's the voice I think of him doing Treebeard with the haroos. And- yeah, <laughs> I did not know yeah. he was Treebeard. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. That, that makes sense, of course, yeah. So just perfect for Treebeard and... He was a tall man, and he really, really had a good presence with voice and body on the when he was in productions, even if it was just an audio, yeah. audio staging. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I don't know, you probably haven't listened to any of the Scarifiers. I've not, no. no. Yeah, so he took over from uh, Nick Courtney after Nick Courtney passed. Oh, really? Okay. Lionheart, yeah. All right. Yeah, well, so remind us what the Scarifiers is again. Uh, like me, more accurately speaking. <laughs> uh, Terry, well, originally it was Terry Malloy and Nick Courtney, and I think it was Baffle Gab, Babble Gab. And I can't remember the production company, but they hired all these older Doctor Who actors to put on this kind of horror, Lovecraftian, folk horror in the UK Isles. Uh, uh, exploration thing. Uh, uh-huh. Nick Courtney played Lionheart out of Scotland Yard. Uh, Terry Malloy's character was a, a paranormal professor or okay. a par- a professor of paranormal psychology, and they would explore these uh, uh, ghosts and f- uh, strange phenomena. And the evil actually was evil. There, there were actually demons and that right. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. anyways, but but so they they would always have all, on Doctor Who actors, and they would p- put on this kind of scary audio drama. So Stephen Thorne was part of that troupe too. So he he did lots of lots of audio stuff on BBC. Uh, I think he even played Aslan in the BBC oh, Narnia cool. radio adaptation. So he was just all over Radio Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so sorely missed, I think, Steve, Mr. Stephen Thorne. And uh, there was a really nice obituary for Stephen Thorne in The Guardian. And there was also, there was a very good um, uh, obituary for Paul Darrow with uh, by... Um, Toby Haydock. Toby Haydock um, wrote, yeah. wrote that one for The Guardian. So. Oh, okay, so yeah, he did both then. Oh, I right, missed, okay. Well, he was, yeah, I missed the uh, missed the one on uh, Darrow. Yeah, well, I was, I've been lucky to be in Britain the last couple of weeks, um, so mm-hmm. I was able to read those in an analogue fashion, which was, mm-hmm. which was good. So how was the UK? Uh, it was, it was uh, fabulous. the fallout of Theresa May. <laughs> yeah, we're, now we're, we're we've decided to start squabbling over who's going to be the new um, Conservative Party leader and therefore de facto Prime Minister, which means mm-hmm. we've actually stopped trying to work out what to do about Brexit. Um, <laughs> so, so we'll have the Tory Party leader election thing that's going to go on for about six weeks. Uh, then we've got the summer recess, so everyone from Parliament goes away on holiday. They all come back in September. They don't really start work again until the end of September, and then it's October, and then we're done. So yep. yeah, 
What a mess. Country's going to hell in a handbasket. It truly is. It's weary. We are. It's Inferno. Yeah, exactly. It's the, the brigade leader is waiting in the, uh, waiting in the wings. Mm. Yeah, not good. Nigel Farage. Yeah, not, 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 not good at all. I was also very, very lucky, very lucky to be in London the same time that our, our wonderful president mm. was in London. So that was exciting. Did you see the baby Trump blimp? I did not see the baby Trump blimp, though I did see <laughs> Trump's evil helicopters um, mm. soaring over central London. Mm -hmm. So that was exciting. Huge, huge crowds outpouring, outpouring, outpouring of support. Of support. Yes, um, there were no huge crowds. I was in central London. Uh, the huge crowds that were there were to protest Donald Trump, not to praise him. So I don't know where he's getting that information from. From his own diseased brain, no doubt. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps, 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 yes. You didn't happen to uh, swing by Roseberries of London and take a look at those Power of the Dalek photos that have I did not. been released. I, I'm surprised, actually, that, well, maybe they had, well, uh, I'm surprised that nobody went to that auction with their iPhone and, like, took pictures of each. I'm not. I think the auction is coming up later in the month here. Oh, you said yeah. So that and still next may week. Okay, maybe later this week or next next week, or maybe it's in July. But at uh, Derek Dodd, who is the production designer for uh, Power of the Daleks, has this exquisite set of color photos that he took from the production. They're great, and uh, they are amazing. The first tranche of these uh, photos were snapped up by a private individual for like five thousand plus pounds. Oof, that's so, a lot of money. And there was only one color Troughton in the power room with the next to the lava lamps, but this has significantly more color photos. I can imagine these going for a lot more money. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's. Uh, we ju I just hope that um, they might they'll be made public in some way. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But we'll just have to see about that. Yeah, they're just gorgeous pictures, and I mean, there's they have one of Trout and Polly and Lesterson looking at the power complex with their backs turned, jamly at the power complex. Henslow in his chair, you know, just really great great pictures and it just shows how uh, how amazing power power would have looked even in black and white yeah 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 what's a shame those didn't surface before the um animation was mm -hmm. done um was was there a color there was a color version of power of the daleks the animation yeah right? it was done after the fact by bbc north america that's it that's it uh colored it and the color was done not by the 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 same team uh, and the color was pretty pretty crappy oh well never mind. well I, I i guess they can do a redo in time for when they when they release the box yeah. set so that is perhaps that is and, may, and maybe the fan who bought these would be good enough to uh try to monetize his or her investment some way i i would personally hope for a book of Ooh, these wouldn't photos that, wouldn't would that just be, be exquisite oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. goodness mm -hmm. that would be that would be that would be definitely worth buying mm -hmm. um but talking of animation <laughs> there's another animation coming down the pike yeah another season four animation are you thinking of the box set? I'm guessing they're going for the faceless ones. Faceless ones, yeah. With uh, I think it seems to be the same team involved. Yep, mm -hmm. um, which is good. The you know getting those uh, getting value for money from those Ben and Polly faces characters. Um, I guess you got to you got to get in the um, 
Oh god, who's the woman in the faceless ones? Um, Pauline Collins. Pauline Collins. Got to get Pauline Collins in there with mm-hmm. her crazy hat. Yep. And they're going to animate the whole thing. I understand. So we've got two episodes extant. Yeah. Well, I think that they're makes gonna put, sense. They're going to put those broadcast. to one side. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I guess it does. I guess it would be kind of weird to like have a suddenly switch to a. Uh, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work, would it? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be a fun DVD mm-hmm. to be looking forward to. It'll be interesting to see an animated Wanda Ventham because she is in that one as well. Oh yeah, of course, the mother of the celebrated actor Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes, yes. that'll be interesting. I, I wonder if they will. <laughs> be tempted to do a uh, just a, a quick uh, image of the Fendel Fendel yeah a uh, Wanda Ventham version yeah maybe she'll be wearing like a, some Fendeline jewelry or something ooh that'd be good that would be little, good they little, should do that because they had that that little trailer that they gave the teaser teaser trailer they had Magpie Electrical in one of the adverts at uh, oh, oh I missed that did they that's fantastic yeah Excellent. when they're going up the Going up the escalator, uh, one of the adverts, instead of a cigarette or a liquor brand, they had Magpie Electrical. Oh, perfect. I mean, it's my view that actually we should be um, retrofitting Magpie Electrical into basically all of Doctor Who at this point. Um, I think that would be... <laughs> they should be, you know, they should be... International Electromagnetic... Matic. Electromagnetic, Matic. Um, whatever it is, should be should be just retrofitted to being Magpie Electrical, basically. Well, what I think is uh, International Electromatic is the overall like company, but Magpie Electrics is oh, it's the, the consumer the brand. Consumer brand. The consumer yeah. brand. Perfect. Yeah. Yes, that is yeah. exactly yeah, what... Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. That is, you are completely correct about that. Yeah. So we have some animations to look forward to, and I guess we uh, have a Faceless Ones podcast that we can look forward to sometime next year. Oh, I'm looking forward to it already. Classic. And yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll, next year we'll have a new one. We'll have a season 12 to look forward to as well. We do. Yeah. Uh, with a Mohawk Jadoon. With a Mohawk Jadoon. Um, filmed in Gloucester, which is quite near yeah. where I was um, in Britain. Oh, you didn't stroll down the road and try to go, hey, Jode. Jode. Um, I think they'd already finished um, filming, uh, the, filming the Jadoon platoon on the streets of Gloucester. Um, I'm curious to know whether they're still going to be speaking um, Jadoonish. Well, Nick Briggs is doing the voice, is what the uh, announcement said or the rumor said. So I imagine it's going to be the no blow go. So what's so how, how are they going to explain that away with the TARDIS being present? Because would the TARDIS translate the um, Jadoonish? Maybe it translates uh, into a form that you can hear because they never got rid of accents and that kind of stuff. And maybe Jadoon is so weird that that is the closest they can do for an accent. Wow. Okay. Uh, So. I don't know, stretching? <laughs> yeah, so Jadoonish is kind of like Scottish or something. Right, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Drunk Scots. Yeah, yeah. yeah but this, um, I think we saw pictures of the Dune with a, with a, with a delightful-looking mohawk. That's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going all punk. Going the punk Jadoon. Well, they are kind of goth, or kind of candom-lock goths anyway, mm, um, yeah. the Jadoon. So maybe they've got a kind of a punk element to them too. Kind of an interesting pick for a returning monster. Yeah, it's not the one. Villain. It's villain. Yeah, right? it's a, monster villain. They're a monster, aren't they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're not really a villain. I mean, they're space policemen. <laughs> they're rhinos. Yeah, rhinoceros. Yeah, they're space rhinoceros. Unless, of course, we actually <laughs> discover that they're related to the Krals, mm. um, and this is all Kral plot to, Ooh, that'd be good. in a very complicated way, take over the planet by creating an imitation of that planet, um, etc., etc., etc. You know, I wonder if it's uh, going to be a big element of the story or if it's not going to be more like the Movellans where, yeah, they're in there, but they're not really in there. Uh, yeah, maybe, though. Would you think they would have bothered to do a Mohawk if that was the... 
case. Well, uh, generate some buzz. I don't know. Comic Con San Diego's coming up. I'm sure they're going to do some Doctor Who rollout there. Oh yeah. Maybe Jody is. will be escorted in the hall by with... a Jadoon platoon. There you go. Uh, away from the moon. Interesting. Well, is, is, is Whitaker going to be at the Comic Con then? Do you know? No announcement's been made yet, but okay. I would guess that would be the case. I mean, she was last year. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. I won't be at Comic-Con this year, but um, we'll see where the Jodie Whittaker is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, the last bit of news I have is uh, the great man himself, John Pertwee, 100th anniversary of his birth coming in July, the centenary, the Pertwee centenary. Yeah, 100 years, 100 years of John Pertwee. I think there's going to be, there's going to be a special on Radio 4, I believe. There is, um, yeah. That was announced earlier this week. And um, no doubt a whole bunch of other Pertwee-focused tomfoolery yeah. will, will, will occur. Who knows? Radio Times has uh, some early photos of Pertwee in his various roles at the BBC in acting, so that's worth checking out. I'll try to put a link in our show notes to follow along on that. But uh, And then uh, I think the, the BBC Radio 4 documentary on Pertwee does it go out on his uh, anniversary of his birth, 7th I, of July? I or? do not know. I do not know. Okay. They're also doing, the BBC are also, they're doing a, um, uh, they're doing a reboot of um, Wurzel Gummidge. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Look huh. at the, you should, you should look at the pictures. They're kind of amazing. Um, uh, who is Gareth in the office? Wait a second. I'm just Googling that. My brain is still jet lagged and is not um, functioning properly. Mackenzie Crook. Hmm. He's playing the titular role, and he is playing was was a gummage. And the the okay. page, the it's kind of folk horror-y, basically. Um, you know, mm. obviously, was the reason why we talk about was a gummage. Um, people who don't know why we're doing that is because that was after Doctor Who. That was uh, uh John Pertwee's most famous role. Um, and it was kid 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 role kid role kid show. But like like a lot of kind of kids' books from the kind of you know fifties or so, it's the the books are kind of scary as well. Um, mm-hmm. So they're really kind of dialing up the folk horror aspects of um, Wurzel Gummidge. Um, and, of course, Wurzel's head is a turnip, uh, which is kind of played down um, when John Pertwee's plays Wurzel Gummidge. But they're really playing up the turnip nature of uh, Wurzel Gummidge's head, as played by Mackenzie Crook. So check out those images. They're pretty frightening. Should be interesting. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so been a been a, it's it's been a yeah it's been a busy a busy news week. Um, yeah, you know. I think in I think after we uh, resume Love and War probably next week that uh, we'll maybe nip into maybe an overview of the Pertwee era. How does that sound? Oh, I, well, I'm always up for an overview of the Pertwee era. Why not? Excellent. Well, we do uh, uh, just a, a general chat, kind of leading into the seventh of July for the centenary. There's actually there's a really good article in the latest um, Doctor Who magazine about the redoing the effects for Planet of the Daleks, oh, uh, which was really making me feel like I should be buying that Blu-ray set, but I still probably <laughs> won't. Um, still holding out. Still holding out, exactly. But our mate, um, uh, you know, who's our friend? Who's our friend that we met in 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 L.A.? Oh, Rob Ritchie. Rob Ritchie has been pulling out all all the stops to, to reanimate, to redo the kind of Dalek army and the Dalek spaceship and mm. a whole bunch of good stuff. So I, I, that would kind of be exciting to see, I think. Yeah. Well, leading, I guess, leading into the interview, uh, Jess Jerkovic's first 
piece that he is doing that he's out now in three parts is the master's theme from season eight classic excellent very good so where can we hear these 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 wonderful bits of music Probably the best way to find him, or the easiest way that I found, is uh, he's on Twitter at J E S S J U R K O V I C, Jess Jerkovic. And then he, there's links to YouTube for his videos. You could always search, okay. but it's a little harder to find yet because it's so new. Right. So, uh, interesting, interesting man. Uh, another Minnesotan who moved out to New York to be a, to be a jazz man. Uh. Interesting. And is, is he a jazz man? He is, indeed. And uh, I think he's also a teacher. And uh, his background in jazz really led to his ability to transcribe from ear what he heard on the soundtracks. Exciting. Exciting yeah. stuff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we'll give that a listen to. And then after the interview, we'll sign off. Excellent. <laughs> Welcome to the Metabilis 2 podcast, uh, Jess Jerkovic, right? Jerkovic is right. Jerkovic is right. Um, and you are the creator of the newly launched Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who project. That's right. And uh, I think, uh, I, I guess, come clean here. You're, you're a fellow Minnesotan. You're uh, a Minnesota exile. You're in New York State. I'm in uh, West Coast in Oregon. And we both grew up relatively in the same time in uh, a suburb of St. Paul, watching Doctor Who on KTCA. You've got it. Full disclosure, that is absolutely right. <laughs> Were you watching on when it was on the Monday through Friday in the evenings, or did you come to it a little later when it was on the weekends? How did you get hooked into Doctor Who? It's a mystery exactly how I got connected <laughs> to it, uh, but I know that it was still being shown episodically mm -hmm. uh, at the time I started watching that. I'm guessing that would have been something like 81, 82. Yeah. And so... I those that was how I got introduced, of course, to Tom Baker's Doctor, and but I don't have very clear memories of it. I just know that I felt uneasy watching it, but I knew I had to watch it. <laughs> so, did you have siblings that were watching it, maybe? Or no, it was kind of just me. I had a couple of friends in school who were possibly interested in well as in it as well but uh i i think i was interested in it far more than any of my friends <laughs> were you playing piano at the time then or no actually i didn't come to uh being a musician until i was in my teenage years and eventually went to college for it but no it was that was a long time in coming Mm -hmm. So you weren't at the same time, then you weren't trying to uh, work out the cues and stuff. That was much later in college or much, much later. No, no, no. These, uh, uh, I, I went to, uh, school to be a jazz pianist mm -hmm. and I, uh, went to the university of Minnesota to get my undergraduate. And then mm -hmm. I uh, moved to New York city to, uh, you know, be where jazz happens Right. Uh, and I went to Manhattan School of Music and got my master's degree. Um, so Doctor Who and music didn't connect until basically I started this project. Really? So, and you started with a, in your first video, you said it was a transcription of the master's theme That's from right. Terra Viatons. Right. So it was a, 
it was really uh, just a curiosity. I have had a, a lot of experience with transcribing because especially as a jazz musician, that's how you learn how other musicians interpret and improvise. Mm -hmm. So you sit down and you, uh, at your instrument with a recording, work out what they're doing and write it down or just learn it by ear. And so I was familiar enough with that, having done that for many years. And so just out of curiosity, I decided to sit down and figure out how that master's theme work, uh, worked. And it was mm -hmm. specifically the perhaps most famous version of it that happens in The Mind of Evil. That was my very first uh, transcription. And then later on, much later on, I came back to it and it grew and grew into a much larger piece of related themes. Mm -hmm. So what is uh, in Simpsons music then attracts you as a musician or as a fellow composer, as an arranger that led to more than 30 pieces of uh, composition of your own adaptations of Simpsons works? I guess his depth of orchestration, the various instruments that he used. I liked very much that he seemed equally at home at the radiophonic workshop and at the same time could write a piece for a small ensemble of woodwinds and horns and percussion and piano and whatever. There's a huge variety in the sounds that D uh, Dudley Simpson creates. And also, I think his musical palette is is very large that is to say he's willing to be dissonant and push the envelope of of sounds not just sounds but musical harmony that not all composers like i hear a lot of the composers later like um that happened in the 80s and then in uh, today's uh the, the uh, revamped new series Mm -hmm. um, the advantage they they have is that they can write for an orchestra. I, I still don't feel like their music is as daring as a lot of Dudley Simpson's is. And mm -hmm. so I guess for that reason, his music has always just really fascinated me. But until I did this project, I didn't know entirely why. I just knew, I just knew it was special. You just gravitated to the stories with Simpson in or, or I, I Simpson's compositions, I guess. I wouldn't say that was the only reason. Again, mm -hmm. watching the program was a separate pleasure. Right. Uh, but I always did gravitate in a way towards his music at the same time as the stories that I loved. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting you describing him as very innovative because uh, often I think a lot of his scorers they tend to be able to run together a, a lot there. And he seems to, a, a, as a, a composer, six to like to 120 beats per minute in his compositions. And, and, uh, and especially on his earlier ones in the 60s, he wasn't able to record or, um, or timing to what's actually going on on the screen. So he would, uh, he would write things just suggested and then trim them as needed for whatever scene that a director wanted musical cues to. Yeah, I, I think you've got that right. Although I would suggest that it was probably the director that did the cutting. I think Dudley Simpson's music from the 60s and early 70s were set pieces that the director 
set to wherever mm-hmm. he or she saw fit. Um, but somewhere around uh, season eight, I think it was in 71, somewhere around Claws of Axos or whatever, mm-hmm. it was uh, now technologically possible for Simpson to compose to the picture rather than just be given suggested scenes or sounds or emotions that uh, he could suggest in in some of his music. So then the music became much more specific. And you're right. As I proceeded through towards the middle and late 70s in his music, it's it's all to the the, the tempo is all to the second. That is to say mm-hmm. the tempo started not varying at all. Right. And I think that was just a convenience of being able to say, okay, I now have to write 65 seconds of music so i'll make you know 65 beats of music or right you know i i I think that was simply a convenience Mm -hmm. um and so that you're right that is absolutely true that that is what Mm -hmm. ended up happening with some of his compositions so is there other things that you'd be looking for uh, because i'm not i'm not uh, a musician so I'm, i'm wondering how difficult or what the challenges are for like a Simpsons score where he would compose using uh, synthesizers or early synthesizers as his primary instrument, like in series or season eight. Yeah. And then the more ensemble approach is where he have six to eight musicians plus uh, early synthesizer and an organ that he would work in. And what challenges that would provide for you as an arranger, moving it from a multi-musician or multi-musical instrument piece into a a piano arrangement for solo piano. Mm. Many of the radiophonic workshop pieces sound like someone sitting at the keyboard. I mean, Mm -hmm. to me, that's what I hear, is that there is a sense of right hand and left hand. Um, Besides the master's theme, uh, some of my upcoming pieces are... Uh, from The Underwater Menace and from Fury from the Deep. And Mm -hmm. those pieces um, sound a lot like keyboard-style music. Whereas, as you suggest, when we go into uh, larger ensemble pieces, it's not always possible to recreate the music completely accurately on a single instrument, like even one as versatile as the piano. But that was never my intention to literally transcribe his music, but to translate it. Mm -hmm. And so when I came to music of the 70s written for ensembles, uh, I would come to pieces that sometimes I realized I just couldn't do the -hmm. way I wanted. I couldn't be true enough to the music because it was too rich. Mm-hmm. And and that was okay. But most mm-hmm. of the time, I could figure out a way. I'm actually most proud of being able to transcribe some of the music from City of Death, that mm-hmm. beautiful uh, Gershwin-esque score um, from the, the Parisian scenes. Right. That, that worked great, although it was very rich music as well. And so that's an interesting challenge. It's a very different challenge working some of the earlier music, I mean, in late 60s particularly, uh, even right. if you go back to music like The Chase or a Celestial mm-hmm. Toymaker, that was still written for an ensemble. So there is still a challenge of, 
either paring it down as necessary or being able to execute several instruments on one instrument. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time I was able to find either a happy medium or make it work. But, but it was still a challenge. And that's another reason that I guess I was drawn to it is that it was something that was going to push me as a performer. How can I execute this music and be, be true to it? And as a, as a listener, that's one of the things that really excites me about your project, uh, like, say, compared to, like, Heathcliff Blair's earlier arrangements of Simpsons music from the uh, Hinchcliffe Holmes era, mm -hmm. is that you're, you're crafting these new arrangements and you're, you, you're, you're separated from a synthesizer where I think the temptation would be really towards emulation. Well, I can just add another instrument or exactly. add, add another layer. But this is, this is you as a composer. It seems to be doing selective editing and arranging and not mimicry, so to speak. Yeah, it's a, it's a, like I say, it's a translation. I wasn't trying to get it exactly right, although I wanted the notes to be accurate. I usually didn't fudge with that. But sometimes right. I did have to figure out what is physically possible on the piano out of this music. And there were a couple of pieces that I ultimately decided didn't make standalone pieces or mm -hmm. were just too rich that I couldn't I couldn't execute it the way they deserved. So, but most of the time I feel I feel pretty good about what the what the end result was. Was there an example of one uh, Simpson score that would be really a challenge that you just kind of set aside and said this is not this isn't going to work for solo piano? Yes, the first one that comes to mind is uh, the opening strains of episode 1 of the Android Invasion in which the uh. malfunctioning android is walking through the forest and eventually plunges off a cliff. Yes. There's this marvelous, mechanistic, quirky, slightly dissonant, slightly slightly consonant music, which really intrigued me when I first heard it. But the instrumentation is just enough that I was like, I need three hands to play this. <laughs> and I since I don't have that. Right. And I, I you know, I considered it enough to say, well, can I get away with just leaving stuff out? There were mm -hmm. there were, for example, one of my upcoming um tr uh, transcriptions is the music from uh the chase, the introduction to right. the Empire State music. Uh, mm -hmm. the Empire State very band. jazzy. Very jazzy, but also, you know, uh clarinet, piano, um uh, various other instruments going on there. And there were things that I had to leave out to make that piece work. Right. Um, but I felt like enough of the piece was there that I wasn't sacrificing too much. But mm -hmm. I felt with the music of the Android Invasion, I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, so that was frustrating. Occasionally mm -hmm. there would be other things, like um, I, w I, I uh, set aside the music from part two of the Talons of Wing Chiang, the two-minute scene where the doctor is chasing Magnus Greel through the theater. Oh, right, yes. That kind of music is great because there was no dialogue. It was all mm -hmm. about the music. And yes. so that very much intrigued me. But upon listening and listening, I was like, this music is great, but it doesn't stand alone. That was very mm -hmm. important to me. I wanted the music to be able to stand alone as a piece of music, right? not just married to the picture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and as a, a composer of incidental music, 
not all of Simpsons music is designed to have a melody and a harmony like a traditional piece of music. Sometimes it was right. just there to reinforce an emotion or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, emphasize a piece of dialogue or a piece of action. It's not mm -hmm. there to be, you know, solo. So right. it was weeding through all of the different um, scores. And of course, obviously, there was almost 300 episodes of, of right. Simpson episodes. <laughs> so I watched a lot of Doctor Who again, which was a pleasure. Right. Um, but listening to it as a musician made it a different challenge because, you know, not every uh, program yielded um, music that I thought was intriguing enough or interesting enough or as I say, stand alone enough. Mm -hmm. So like Simpson would reuse motifs, I think, or themes or melodies occasionally throughout his uh, scoring. And I think one that comes up is uh, the theme that he kind of created for Tom Baker's The Fourth Doctor, Indeed. which I think first appears, uh, I think, in the famous The Witty Little Knitter, Madame Nostradamus scene that he would then revisit through uh, through through his scoring all the way, I guess through the Graham Williams era. Correct. Is that is that something that then you would say that okay, I recognize this and I've heard it before. Then let's let's continue on with it. Yes, in fact, going through that process of finding what I would call the Doctor's theme, right, um, and finding all the different iterations of it, but also the evolution of that melody, because there's a definite evolution from season 12 all the way through season 17 when mm -hmm. you know simpsons end there are instances of that theme almost every season and so mm -hmm. it was mining the music for the for those kind of themes that eventually inspired me to create a larger piece based on the recurrences of that very theme Mm -hmm. And that that created a pretty big piece, um, mm -hmm. but I, I I like how it evolved because there are a lot of different um, orchestrations. What I love about Simpsons music is that despite the fact that he was called upon to uh, create music for almost three hundred episodes, and there are these instances of themes that recur, there mm -hmm. is no repetition. That is to say, he didn't just borrow a literal clip of music from one story and put it in another. Mm -hmm. It was always somehow developed or varied or reorchestrated or something. And mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of craft, you really have to admire. Yeah. So regarding the Doctor's theme, that was what eventually inspired me to go back. And I talk a little bit about this in episode one of the Dudley Simpson Project is that at first the transcription was just that one 45-second piece of the master's theme. But going through several stories and realizing how certain themes recurred or were varied or developed allowed me to create larger pieces out of very short themes. And so the master's theme turned from 45 seconds into five minutes because right. there's a whole bunch of stuff from season eight that mm -hmm. is related to that very same musical idea or musical harmony or such and such. Well, I think also with perhaps Simpson's background as classically trained composer, that he would have hints or kisses to other classical works and 
one that immediately comes to mind, like is in the Stones of Blood, when the doctor is baiting the ogre stone over the cliff, you hear a little bit <laughs> of a charge going on, and and he just works it in. So he, I think he can take these themes or these melodies from other composers or from himself, and then rework it into something greater or in something new. Well, those kind of references are are always important for a composer, uh, grounding a composer perhaps, you know, and uh, those kind of references are, are very common actually in jazz to improvise yet quote another song is um, bread and butter to a, a jazz musician. <laughs> and so um, I think I think you're right about that. I, I didn't notice a lot in my researches. I didn't notice a lot of literal quotations like you mentioned in, in Stones mm -hmm. of Blood. And even in The City of Death, which recalls a lot of American in Paris, right. I'm not aware of any quotes mm -hmm. that he uses. It's just the style, the the yeah. um, the environment, the, the feeling mm -hmm. of that piece is really what he's trying to evoke. But I don't feel like he's ever that literal about it, which is fun. Mm -hmm. Well, that might be what he uh, trying to understand when Simpson was explaining his Dalek march from Genesis of the Dalek. That mm. He he was trying to do a bolero type um, thing because a march was too long, but a bolero you could kind of uh, convey the same uh, mood or the same beat with that with in something as, as shorter because he only had you know twelve seconds to work with or something like that. Right, right. I, I mean, I never thought of that as as a bolero, but. To find a reason for things is actually very important for a composer. You don't want things to be that random. So mm -hmm. it's stimulating to find a connection. You, you mentioned a Dalek theme. If you go right. to the Dalek theme in Evil of the Daleks, he's literally relating it to the Doctor Who theme. Mm, yes. So, yeah. so that's very important to a composer to not only to make it sound good, but even if no one knows... To have a mm -hmm. reason for things. I think right. that logic is important to a composer. And from your transcriptions then, or I, I, you're calling them transcriptions, they seem more like arrangements in, in many ways too because of, of, of the, this collation of pieces or scores and then distilling them down into uh, a, a greater pieces. And so you you have to make that same kind of, I'm doing this for a specific reason, or I, I like this this version of it better than what he did perhaps in a different a different rendition of it. Right. I think that's true. The, the element of both transcription, getting the notes down and understanding what was happening structurally and then mm -hmm. arranging it so that I can play it alone on the piano right? and also be authentic to the music. Uh, very important, for example, for any of the electronic scores, um, which mm -hmm. often have very synthesized artificial uh, timbres in, in the music. Uh, one transcription I did, which I'm really quite happy with, is uh, some of the music from Frontier in Space, where the Doctor has to do a spacewalk outside the spaceship. And mm -hmm. there are two very specific musical cues that happen there, but they're also very electronic. There's a lot of bending pitch and do, making artificial sounds that aren't possible on the piano. So it was a question of, 
how do I do this, be able to play mm -hmm. it myself, yet make it authentic enough to the real piece that I'm not over-composing it? I didn't want to be a composer and, you know, emphasize my own personality over Dudley <laughs> Simpson. That's not right. quite possible to do because I'm arranging. But at the same time, right. that's that wasn't my priority. There was a couple of times mm -hmm. where... Like, I needed to come up with a beginning and an ending, or figure out how to connect two pieces that didn't actually connect in the program. How do I make that musically connect? And sometimes I needed to add my own musical material. But I tried to minimize those uh, instances. Yeah. So piano is a percussion instrument, and it's not, I, I, I guess that's my understanding of it. It's not generally considered, or people don't normally think of it as a percussion instrument, but it is a percussive instrument. It absolutely is. It's a, it's a drum with 88 drums. Okay. So, so when I was thinking about this project, when I was doing a little background stuff, I'm going, well, the classic Simpson sound is he'll have an organ and then there'll be timpanis and there'll be, and he'll have a, a, a really good percussionist out there. Oh yes. And you'll have rattlesnakes and all these different types of things. Mm. And was Simpson's reliance or using the drum kits so extensively, uh, any particular challenge then as you for transcribing or arranging these? There were occasions where I had to, adapt something more percussive uh, to make my uh, arrangement the way I wanted it to sound. Again, I, I keep returning to the word authentic. I want it to right. sound as close as possible. Um, one of the earlier transcriptions I did was the theme to The Seeds of Death, mm -hmm. which involves... There's like a bass drum and there's cymbals and all of those are electronically treated. And to some extent, I wanted to create a sound on the piano that reflected that. Mm -hmm. um, another, um, another one which I'm quite proud of is uh, music from The Chase, uh, particularly the scene where um, the Dr. Ian, Barbara, and Vicky are luring the Dalek, this is episode two, luring the mm -hmm. Dalek into the pit so that they can get to the TARDIS and, and escape. And there's mm -hmm. this, this like sort of small symbol kind of sound which permeates that whole little clip. And so I used a percussive high register sound on the piano to, to execute that. And those kind of things I wasn't always able to uh, incorporate it into the piano piece but those kinds of things are fun too incorporating the purely percussive nature of piano it is quite possible and I, I think with a lot of the um, modern classical music that I've experienced a lot of composers have used the piano as a percussive instrument rather than a pitched instrument just as a sound a uh, an effect instrument huh. okay. and so i was occasionally able to do that in some of my arrangements well that's that's really cool <laughs> i hope so i hope so yeah uh i mean ultimately as you see the performances um mm -hmm. you'll get a sense of of where those occasions are and performance in itself is always a bit uh 
dramatic. But right. um, but ultimately, I wanted to use this opportunity not only to perform the pieces, but uh, an element of the Dudley Simpson project was also to talk about the music itself and right. kind of geek out about the music theory that was mm. going on, mm -hmm. what he actually did to construct his pieces um, and, and the cues and, and the various themes that recur. And also to talk about what I had to do to, um, to make those pieces work as a, a standalone piece. And mm. A further inspiration was when I discovered that a lot of classical music scores, people have married recordings to the musical score, to pictures of the musical score. And so that was something I wanted to do too, is to actually share my written scores of the music. Uh -huh. And so at this point when we're talking, I'm about to release um, the latest part uh, where that's exactly what happens is that it's a recording of my performance but accompanied by um, the score itself so although you may not read music I always right. find um, notated scores kind of beautiful um, mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that to be able to follow along to the music and maybe see some of the structures in the way the music is uh, is written might might be interesting to some people Maybe yeah, it's just to I me. So. I don't know. But. Yeah, no, I think I think that is. It's because uh, looking at sheet music, it's it's a beautiful art form in in and of itself, and how the notes are composed on the staff and stuff. So it, I think it, it would be interesting to follow along as as you are playing. Yeah, and I mentioned earlier um, one of my transcriptions from Frontier in Space. I actually had to create my own notation for what I wanted to do for that hmm. like it was I couldn't find a way that someone else had transcribed what I was hearing so I made up my own notation <laughs> uh, it's not particularly um, original or anything but right. to execute what I wanted to do I, I had to figure something out so necessity is the wow. mother of, in, of invention they say so is that going to be one of the scores that you're going to feature following along on your on the screen? Or oh, heck yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> right now, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the series is basically I'm retracing the steps of my journey. So mm -hmm. I started with my very first transcription, although it much later evolved into a larger piece. But right. next I'm going into the, the various other pieces that I did. Eventually, I went back to the beginning and just started watching methodically and right. went back to planet of giants and went back to the crusade and so on and so on and mm -hmm. eventually was just going um chronologically uh all mm -hmm. the way through uh so but at first it kind of bounces around a little bit but is generally uh at the towards the beginning uh uh, a lot of my earlier transcriptions are based on the fact that the recordings were separately available like the master's right. theme you know right Right. It's the stuff from the Radiophonic Workshop is still available. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is there, aside from like your innovation with Frontier and Space in notation, is there any other overlooked gems in Simpson scoring that you're particularly excited about showing off your arrangement of that maybe mm. have been overlooked in fandom? Mm. Wow. What a great question. Um, well, it was particularly stimulating again to 
collate cues from separate pieces like I did with the master's theme and create right. a larger piece from that. That was very exciting for me. Um, to see how the doctor's theme in Tom Baker's era evolved was, was exciting for me. Mm -hmm. And to realize how I could create uh, larger pieces uh, was, was exciting as a composer and arranger. As regards innovative, I'm not sure. Um, okay. and, but there were, but it was so fun to renew my acquaintance with all of these, uh, stories, but in a very different way, uh, listening rather than watching as much. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that was very rewarding. Um, and to, to just say, oh, I like the sound of that. I'm going to figure out what it is to have that freedom to just be curious and, right. and, uh, and figure it out. And then also not only to figure it out, but say, how am I physically going to do this? Which in some cases was, was very challenging. I remember coming across the opening music to the Ark in Space, which mm -hmm. is this very slow, um, quiet, um, pulsing, which eventually erupts in these big, actually very dissonant chords, very keyboardy, uh, right. very synthesizer, I should say. And, um, and there was a lot going on. I was like, can I actually do this? And, and to mm -hmm. physically figure it out was, right. was very exciting, uh, to, yeah. to be able to do it. So, I mean, ultimately this is a selfish pleasure. I did this for myself, <laughs> you know, I did this for myself and my own enjoyment, but when the project started taking on a larger life, I was like, there's no reason why I shouldn't share this. Right. So that's ultimately what happened. And on a side note, it's just been fun to not only make these scores and perform it, but also to figure out how to talk about it, to mm. figure out how am I going to record this on my phone? What equipment <laughs> do I need? How do I use iMovie? Like, you know, all of this stuff I've had to figure out from scratch, but it's right. been great. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I know that in the first episode, if, uh, if any listeners have already seen it, because it was my first try, I got a couple of things that I wanted to do better and I wish I could right. have. But, but you know, it's a learning process. It always is. So the second mm -hmm. one will get better and so will the third one and so on. Oh, well, so Jess Jerkovic, I'm so thankful that you decided to share the Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who project beyond just keeping it for yourself because I'm really excited to see what's in episode two and forthcoming. You mentioned, I think you said, have over 30 pieces that you're going to show. And I just encourage everyone to follow you on YouTube and follow along in the Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who project. David, thanks so much for uh, talking to me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again to Jess Jerkovic for agreeing to be interviewed. It was very interesting and really look forward to more episodes of Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who Project. The next 
One after the master's theme is the fish people from Underwater Menace. So that's going to drop sometime, I think, next week or the week following week. So looking forward to that. And again, you can uh, follow Jess on Twitter at Jess Jerkovic, uh, J-E-S-S-J-U-R-K-O-V-I-C. And he's on Facebook and he's on YouTube. So follow, subscribe, like, share, get the word out. This is pretty amazing work here and very enjoyable if you at all love Dudley Simpson's Doctor Who music. And who doesn't? Who doesn't? He's, I think, the the, 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 the most, the, the best, really, Doctor Who composer, yeah. really, in many ways. Um, yeah, I have just followed Jess Jerkovic and I will be... Uh, I will be looking forward to um, hearing these drop as the project continues. Exciting stuff. Excellent. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to episode 118 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. And who have you been talking with, David? I have been talking with Jess Jerkovic. <laughs> Fantastic. And next week, I guess we're going to uh, talk about love and war, if, if we all are. goes well. If all goes well. If we can struggle to the to the end of the book and um, we'll be talking about love and war next week and giving our view on a, a post uh, a post television doctor who ace adventure pivotal a pivotal adventure in the in the virgin history of ace all right all right okay we'll speak to you next week then bye